I'm Michael Morgan and she is Chantal Lund. And we are back for another episode of Why I'm No Longer Talking to Institutionally Racist Police. Yes, we know we have been on a break. Yes, we know there have been several things that we have missed by way of talking points. Yes, we know you've been gagging for another episode and that is why we're here. But you know what? Life gets in the way. Life gets in the way. Speaking of which, let's just break down what life has been getting in the way. Because for me, and it's one of the talking points which I'm going to lead with, I have been on Twitter spaces and basically conducting conversations, discussions, but more importantly, amplifying um, the issues that we really do need to have at the forefront of our rhetoric when we're talking about what the police are doing, which need a little bit of a tweak, which need a little bit of a tuck, and which kind of underscore the narrative of it's time to withdraw consent. But over to you, Shanta. What's been keeping you busy? Why have you been away from our wonderful podcast? Um, many things, Michael. So I have been getting my head down and finishing the last of my degree, which was my master's. And I can happily tell you guys that I got a distinction. I got me more, um, I think, two Yay. weeks ago. Yeah. Yay! So that's all going towards the good fight. It's a, a master's in criminology and social policy. Um, as I say, I, I didn't feel like I was doing something separate from the movement because I know that knowledge is power. And the more that we can arm ourselves with knowledge, the more powerful we are. Um, and then I've been doing quite a lot of writing. So I've been performing, um, spoken word. I've obviously been on the picket line and on the process line, as I always am. But, and then I've, I've, I've attempted to wind down a little bit this month. So I've been slightly more um, in tune with myself. <laughs> this month as well. <laughs> <laughs> Tremendous. Now on to what's on the docket. Hold on a minute. You know what? Even before we get to the docket, I know we do have quite a bit to um unpack. I've got two burning issues, which are recent issues, which I really want to bring to the table. And I know you have, but I've got a bone to pick with you. Go and on. I'm so glad that this is unannounced and I'm so glad that this is unrehearsed. Go on. Woman King, you bigged up that movie. You told me. Mike, I've seen that twice. And, you know, this is highly recommended. And I rate your ability to break down films. And I rate your ability to actually deconstruct narrative structure. But I was not impressed. No! I thought it was just very, very ordinary. It no! gets my three stars. Yes, it gets no. my three stars out of five for two reasons. <laughs> One. In terms of performances, it just felt as though this was kind of like run of the mill. It was almost as though I was seeing um, a very diluted version of Wakanda Forever. And I felt whilst this was based on a true story, let's just get into the gory details of what actually happened in terms of the slave trade and what pivotal part that this group actually played in it. It was very, very muted. Now, you know what the backstory is here you know the true history and i didn't get the sense of what was actually happening in the background and what pivotal part they actually played but i was very underwhelmed by it i, have to <gasps> say. I did feel as though i should have felt a little bit more moved and connected to the characters but it was almost as though for me at least at the very least i was left un underwhelmed no, oh I was a little God. bit disappointed. I'm not going to lie. 
for anyone who can't see me my hands are literally over my mouth now for me michael it was the opposite i went mm. to see wakanda forever twice and the second time i was a bit like i'm just gonna see it to like you know because i want a black film to do well so you know if i'm gonna spend money at the cinema <laughs> i'll go and see this twice i felt like wakanda forever although it was amazing was mm. kind of watered down what the woman king was trying to do i thought it was all in the nuances of relationship but the bit that i loved about it was the cinematography and the fact that it depicted a pre-colonial black empire in all its glory and it had the colors and it had the palaces and even had like you know the the pools of indigo it was just beautiful and i do think you know for dramatization purposes and i also think there was a bit of an editorial decision that we're not going to depict the black nation as the bad guys yeah it wasn't uh, a play-by-play -play historical retelling of a story although there was loads of historical accuracies there they did have the same battles you know it was about the dahomey warriors who did exist in real time they yes. did you know shy away from the kingdom of dahomey having it it, it being elbows deep in the slave trade you know yes. I mean, obviously there was a whole model there was a model battle that played out and and for a lot of us we'd love for that to have been the case we'd love for the dahomey warriors, warriors to have fought for their people but it didn't go down like that but for me the bit that really kind of got me here was it was a case of what we could have had now had colonialism not happened you know what i mean this society that was thriving mm -hmm. kids and families that were happy these women who were protecting the mm -hmm. nation and also like even it looked at gender roles and i was i was actually at a meeting today talking about you know um gender roles and lgbtq because qatar just like massively segueing here I'll, I'll get to my point but you know qatar in the news and everyone's like oh they've got horrendous lgbtq plus laws yeah do you know who colonized qatar <laughs> uh, who, who colonized qatar britain i learned that today apparently britain colonized qatar and do you want to who do you want to know what laws they didn't have before they were colonized okay i'm sitting comfortably yes. you tell me so those laws were apparently a um relic of colonial times and they weren't there before colonialism and we were mm -hmm. kind of speaking to that you know pointing at nations and going oh look how uncivilized they are look at these awful laws but when you look at it as with a lot of um african nations that were colonized those laws came from the British Empire or European colonialism. And uh -huh. so it was interesting to learn that. But in the um, Woman King, they actually, they were talking about notions of gender and basically that those notions of gender and gender binary stuff wasn't always there. And mm. there are effeminate males within the Woman King who were in high positions of authority within, within the empire. And essentially, when you look at West African empires and the way they used to be, that is how it was you know women had high positions in society the way the you know the weren't laws saying that women and women couldn't marry and they were in strict gender binary laws so they were, yeah. were men who were described as effeminate but they would be given quite high up positions within society and so it was only when colonialism happened that all these western structures that we see today were imposed upon um empires so it, for me from a historical perspective and just like seeing that bit of you know what it could have been i just i loved it i absolutely loved it i'd probably watch that film five more times whereas i wouldn't wow. have wakanda forever i wouldn't you know i've done wakanda forever twice and i'm like that's enough for me um, <laughs> Yeah, whether it's because I cried so much that I don't think, like, in terms of my body surviving and dehydration, it would be good for me to go and see that film again um, mm. and sit and cry for our lovely Chadwick yeah. one more time. But, yeah, I, I loved The Woman King, absolutely loved it. You see, that's where I think that um, Wakanda Forever was a triumph in that you really got the sense that it was very woman-centric. Not only did they have 
a new imagining of um, Black Panther being a woman, but it was led by women. The battles were led by women. And the whole thing was very, very much about girl power. I loved it. I loved it from that point of view. But Wakanda Forever had its faults. I think it was way too baggy, way too long. And whilst we needed the collective grieving, whilst we needed the outpouring of basically saying goodbye to Chadwick, I did feel as though we got that at the beginning. We got that in the middle and we got that at the end. I got it. And I felt that this was more filler. This was more padding towards when we actually do see a reimagined, when we got the hint of that at the end of Wakanda Forever, when we see the reimagined um, or the new look um, Black Panther, which will obviously be coming in Black Panther 3. But Black um, Wakanda Forever, for me, that was a three-star movie out of five. I, I really, again, was a little bit underwhelmed by that too. But you know what I haven't been underwhelmed by? Go on. Twitter Spaces. Oh. Twitter Spaces has delivered and it's delivered <laughs> in a big way. Considering who we now find ourselves running Twitter Spaces, it's been bearing up under the weight of people actually using it. I mean, just this past weekend gone, I did a Twitter Space and albeit it was on something which I don't really tackle all that frequently, the listenership and those people actually tuning in, it was round about the three and a half thousand mark. Now it held up, there were no crashes. It didn't actually break down. Three and a half thousand people actually tuned in. But the space before that is the subject of my, well, I suppose what I'm bringing to the table today and that's the gang's matrix. Now, don't get me wrong, three and a half thousand people didn't turn up to that. I think it was just over a hundred people who turned up for that. But the gang's matrix has been on the radar for numerous years. And I have to big up my man, Stafford Scott, who actually brought this to prominence in terms of public um, consciousness and, and, and knowledge around the gang's matrix. And for those who don't know, the gang's matrix is basically a police database containing the personal data of the persons the Metropolitan Police Service perceived to be in a gang and likely to commit violence in their opinion. Now, the Met created the gang's matrix in response to the 2011 riot, which started in Tottenham and spread across London and other major cities in England. Now, the thing is this, the way in which the gang's matrix works, it's very racist. It's very subjective. Individuals can be added to the gang's matrix for a variety of reasons, ranging from social media activity, known criminal activity, and they can actually be referred by a third party, um, such as a housing association, pupil referral units. I mean, I've worked in pupil referral units myself and other children and community service. Now, an individual may not have been involved in any criminal activity, you know, and by and large could have actually been a, 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 a um, recipient or somebody who is a victim of gang violence. Now, the worrying thing is the gang's matrix uses a particular algorithm to determine a score, which is then color-coded. And the worry for me and the worry for those people who have been convened um, in that space was up until several weeks now, um, the police were maintaining that this gang's matrix was prim and proper and apt and fit for purpose. It clearly wasn't because when you actually break 
down the actual metrics here. I'm just going to punch those up. 80% of those on the gangs matrix were aged between 16 and 24 years old. Now, when you look at that as a demographic, 78% of those on the gangs matrix were black males. Now, that is a worry. That means that when you take in totality the way in which the secretive database was actually put together, it has a full weighting and a bias towards Black males. And that's where, you know, for the longest while, I've been really, really worried because having two young boys, one of uh, 13 and one the other who is 15, you know, it's it's quite worrying that they could have actually found themselves on the gangs matrix when you look at the criteria for actually you know scoring and being added to it to cut a long story short the gangs matrix is now going to be reimagined it's going to be pulled apart and a thousand people who were on it are now going to be taken off now that in itself is a problem because in order to find out whether you were on the gangs matrix you have to put together or can uh, concoct or um, submit a sub sub uh, subject access request. Yeah. Now the police can actually literally turn around and say to you, "Well, no, sorry, we can't give you that data because for interests of national security Thanks, or some other like nonsense." So you still could be um, either on it or taken off it and still not know. Hence the reason why we held the space. Now, in that space, I have to say, it was the learned people like, you know, who who actually brought the Met Police um, to the brink of a, a, a court case and they saw the light. And several weeks prior to that, um, in my gut feeling, I feel as though they leaked the story to The Guardian in which they said, well, we're reimagining this matrix now because... You know, having looked at it, it's clear that there are some issues with it. Um, So they avoided going to court with it. So that was a big win for Unjust, led by Katrina French. It was a big win for Stafford Scott. It was a big win for um, Inquest. And it was a big win for Amnesty International. Anyway, I say all that to say this. My big worry about this is what does the reimagined database look like considering how secretive it was to start with and i just wanted your view first of all on the gang's matrix itself but but secondly and this is the key and most important thing what does a reimagined gang's matrix look like that is fit for purpose if one should exist at all I imagine that a lot of people aren't going to find out if they are on that matrix because once they find out, then the police are liable to pay people compensation um, for, you know, probably harassment because I imagine a lot of people who are on the list will have been stop and search, will have had the houses search, will have been subjected to um, a number of police tactics and they won't want that out. They'll try and keep whatever they can as private as they can. And obviously, the fall, the go-to excuse is always national security, it's always safeguard and it can always jeopardise another case, um, which is why a lot of people who should have access to that information don't. Um, one of my lecturers, uh, oh, what books has he released? He's called Dr Rizwan Sabir. 
he's um, got a really good book out. I want to say that it's called Suspect. Um, you probably kill me if he listens to this and he's like, you don't even know what the book's called. But it was basically, he was um, held under as a suspected terrorist when he was studying for his PhD and he kept on getting pulled over. He had loads of interactions with the police and it turned out that he'd basically been put on an Intel database and he had a marker put on him. You'd think that he would have access, especially as he was held, I believe, for almost seven days, um, well above the amount of time that he's supposed to be held in custody. Do you think that they would just give him access to his information, freedom of information, subject access? He yeah. had to get a solicitor to get that information. And obviously, once he got that information, he had grounds to sue um, the police, and he did sue the police successfully. They know that. They know that people will sue them. They know that when people have grounds to sue them. So I imagine a lot of people need to be looking for legal advice, legal support, um, fundraising for legal advocacy on their behalf. And I'd say do that as a collective, because, you know, collective complaints are always stronger, and having that kind of group support is always stronger. I don't imagine, I mean, publicly, I'm, I, I imagine they'll come out and say they've done a matrix that isn't racist and they're not going to target black people and all of that. But look at what they've done with stop and search. They've just said they're going to stop recording race. I wouldn't be surprised if the one thing that they change about the gang's matrix is we don't think it's helpful for us to record race. And, you know, they did a, re they did a U turn on that. They are, they are now recording race initially. Stop and search. Yeah. Initially, they weren't going to do that, but they are now, you know, I, so, I, I'm catching myself here. As far as I know, they've reversed that now. So they are recording race in terms of stop and search. Glad to hear it. Glad to hear it. But I don't imagine much will change. Like in Liverpool, we are the, obviously they're called the known as the Matrix and the known for kicking down doors. And they have big yellow Matrix, fan, matrix fans. And Liverpool is considered... Um, the one of the centers of knowledge around gang activities in OCG because we have not only gangs but our gangs tend to travel all over the UK and we have quite complex um, drug runners known all the way up, into, up to Scotland so we're like one of the leading cities for that kind of matrix and that gang operation and who is the who was the leader and the person who was like absolutely the champion of that Andy Cook my favorite person what does he do now He's the chief constable for the Her Majesty's Inspectorate of Constabulary. That was his baby. I can't see them stepping away from that in any significant way. Mm -hmm. And even in our community in Liverpool, the, there was an area, I think I've mentioned this, Crockstuff, where basically everyone was getting profiled. They were, it wasn't in a racial way, it was more in a working class way because Liverpool's got a big white working class community. But just everyone, criminal or non-criminal, was getting profiled. Everyone was getting treated like criminals, getting 6am searches. And it turned a whole community against them. And while he will admit, oh, we went too far, he didn't step away from the gang's matrix. He just changed his tactics slightly and did a bit of PR. So I imagine we'll have a bit of PR. We'll have a few bits that tweak with the system. But they love intelligence. They love those databases. They love to have that minority report perspective of being able to predict crime. And, and even though they can't fight crime, they sure as hell like to profile significant groups of us and surveil us as criminals, even when we've done nothing wrong. 100%. Over to you. What's on your docket? Your oh, first what your is docket? on my docket? So I suppose one of the things I want to speak for, because I was on one of your Twitter spaces um, mm. with dear Stafford, who does do incredible work, but Stafford um, is not my biggest fan. He actually, <laughs> I was looking... <laughs> 
<laughs> that's to put it nicely i was looking on his twitter the other day um and i think he put something like i don't talk to police officers or something else and i was like and all their mates all their mates all their yeah. mates i was trying to look for it then and basically stafford implied that i was i was a bit silly for joining the police and why didn't i know this and what what did i expect and i get asked that quite a lot i think you've asked me something similar yourself michael and obviously yeah. i always explain the reasons for joining the police and i always explain you know obviously i grew up in care i have worked with young people for most of my career and i really wanted to be that person who did something good for my community the same reason that most people join um, and wanted to be that change that you want to see in the world alongside the police running a really incredible PR campaign about like you know how inclusive the organization was and if you if you're someone who doesn't interact that much with the police other than in a professional capacity you can very much be taken in by that perspective and you know case in point how much now you know it's six years or seven years eight years since I signed up because I think it took a year for me to get in to join the police but how much now do we know about toxic police culture and how many people will still defend the police and say oh but there's good eggs they're just doing the job there's still people who are very much taken in but i was thinking about it the other day and i've been doing a few interviews and a few bits in the media and a few conversations about the police and it's so interesting that as a black person quite often black people and even white people will say to you but surely you knew this about the police why, why did you join and it's interesting because i also hear female officers white female officers talking about experiencing you know sexual harassment sexual assault while they're in the police and no one ever says but you knew this about men why did you join as a woman it's a bit like saying to the victim you know a victim of a sexual assault or the victim of a crime who's been beaten but you knew that you shouldn't have walked down that alleyway but you knew that you shouldn't have wore that skirt there's really a victim blaming mentality when it comes to black officers joining the police especially black officers who've had a hard time in the police force. And while, you know, I absolutely accept, I, like if people don't want to trust former officers, I am there with you. I don't trust anyone really. I think everyone's an undercover officer um, and I wouldn't advise anyone to wholeheartedly trust anyone within, you know, the movement or within circles around activism against the police because we know the circles are massively infiltrated and there are undercover officers everywhere. But I do yeah. question this whole narrative of, but as black people, we should know better because we put, as with a lot of arguments around racism, we put the onus on the people who are targeted by the behaviour and the people, don't want to call us victims because we're not victims, but the people who are at the receiving end of harmful behaviour, the onus is on them rather than on the organisation. So rather than pointing to the police and going, get your house in order, get all the racists out and sort that shit out, we point to the people who experience that behaviour and go well well you should know better this is your fault and so really i just wanted to kind of say what what do you think about that concept of do we victim blame black officers who've joined the police or is it their own stupid fault <laughs> it is their own stupid fault and present company accepted i am on the same page as stafford because the way that i look at it is this you have joined an institutionally racist police service and are carrying out the systems and practices which make you institutionally racist. But not only that, where there have been opportunities to challenge, to push back, to actually make sure that the representation that you present in order to change the organisation which you joined, that you do that and you do that loudly. Now, 
from where I'm sat, if you are not doing that, then first of all, you are treacherous, not only to yourself, but to those people who you purport to serve. The way that I look at the police is not as a force, it's as a service. So if you're going in there to continue to fan the flames and to do nothing about the misogyny, to do nothing about the racism, institutional or, or otherwise, I can see exactly where Stafford is coming from. Now, I know you individually tried to push back, tried to cajole, tried to basically go in and make change, but not everybody is like you. And I come across these people on the timeline all of the time. They're cheerleaders for the police who are urging you to get in contact with your local service, go on ride outs and, you know, go and see what taser training is all about. But what they are, they are paid PR cheerleaders and I have no time for them because they aren't the people who are inside talking about the fact that these systems and practices which undermine um, community cohesion with the police, which perpetuate racism, which fan the flames of institutional racism, they're not saying any of that. They aren't the ones on the timeline talking about the abhorrent behaviour which we are seeing on an almost daily basis. And I'm making sure that this is, you know, um, kept on the timeline because I will not abide by the narrative that this is a one bad apple um, narrative here because it clearly is not. So I can see where Stafford is coming from is what I'm saying. So my view on it is not everybody is like you. And I'm seeing far too many cheerleaders, far too many paid PR on the timeline. I'm going to get onto this later when we're talking about the strip search of predominantly black children um, who aren't saying enough in defense of um, those people who, or those children who are being stripped. Their narrative is, oh, well, I'm going to get onto that. I don't want to get too carried away now, but I'm going to get onto that. But I agree with later. you in that way. So for me, I always say, like, does, have I come across a police officer? <laughs> to be fair, like, I say this and then I'm like, most of the police officers come across. I'm like, first thing I'll say to them is, how long were you with the police and when did you leave and why? And if they've done a full career with the police, left on a fucking full pension, and then yes. after they've left, gone, oh, it was horribly racist. I'm like, what? What the hell were you doing for the first years you were in the force? What were you doing yeah. when you were getting promoted? Why did yeah. you take the pension? What were you doing when you were in there? But if the if they've left fairly early on and they've made noise while they were in there, I'm like, okay. But equally, I've seen so many women as well who've been absolutely destroyed by other officers within the force. And then they leave and they're trying to challenge, especially women who've been in relationships with other officers around domestic abuse. There's an um, report in the Times at the moment. And I've spoken to a few of them and I'm like, and the Fed aren't supporting them because it's a boys club. And no, mm. none of the, you know, the independent campaign groups will go near them because the police, either they're currently police officers or they've left the police force, but they've still got, they've, they've been police officers. And I'm like, where do we get you any help? And even me, I'm like, I don't fully trust you because you used to be, and this is me, you used to be a police officer. So I fully understand that level of, I'm still giving you a bit of a side eye because you used to be a police officer. But I can also see the bit where 
you've experienced you've had a horrible time and I also want to help you so it's a really difficult situation and I think for me it really does have to be a case-by-case basis like even in activism I went into one space and there was this guy who everyone was vouching for he, he fashioned himself as a climate justice activist when I spoke to him he's worked for the he was white he's worked for the Met Police for 30 years and I went well why did you leave and he went what do you mean and I went well why did you leave he went I retired and I went well what did you do do you do after you retired? He went, well, I joined this activist group. I went, so you retired after 30 years in the police and you came straight into activism. I went, are you still mates with police officers? He was like, well, yeah. I went, well, we can't talk anymore. And I was the problem. <laughs> I was like, what the hell are you doing? Like, do you know what I mean? And so, mm-hmm. so I'm, I've got massive scrutiny because why were you in the force keeping your mouth closed and all of a sudden you're public? You want your yes. book feel, you want to go on all these news channels, you want to talk about how horrible it w- was but you did nothing when you were in there. It's like this guy with the mask on. I've seen him all over TikTok. He's got a mask on. He's telling everyone what the police did. He's telling everyone that the police used to use microwaves and get rid of evidence on people's phones. And I'm like, you stood there with a mask on to protect your identity. What the hell were you doing? Were you stood around the microwave with them? Were you turning the power up? So it's all well and good telling your tales once you've left, but what were you doing when you were in there? And that for me is the difference because when people say, what were you doing? I'm like, I was literally standing there calling it out and, and doing everything of course against it and at the point that i realized this is completely futile there is no point being in this space because you don't want to change i was like see you later because at that point i knew that they would get more from me than i would get from them they would get more from having someone like me within the organization because of how i look because of my gender than i would get from my community and that is the thing yep. that i always say to black people they need us but we do not need them they need us they actually need us to make the force look diverse they need us like a veneer to make them look more inclusive and every time we stand there regardless of what we're doing we make them look better so i think campaigns like the ones that we try and run where we're saying don't join are so important and for me it's quite funny to hear people who like a couple of months ago were like oh talk to police officers work with them now changing track because it's not as popular and going oh don't join the police i'm like where were you like three years ago? <laughs> Not only that, you know, you only have to look at what um, we've been reading over the last four weeks in the Baroness Casey review, in that it's only touching the surface of racism that exists within the police service. So, what were those people who were being subjected to it on a day to day basis doing, saying? How were they railing back? Why are they still in the service? Which reminds me, there is a um, a, a fledgling podcast or a, a a newly developed podcast, which is a podcast no more. And um, basically it was run by a black guy. And I can't remember his name. I think it was Dominique or Dominic or something like that. Anyway, um, he ran this podcast and he was interviewing the quote unquote great and the good within the Met Police Service. And then it suddenly went quiet. And then it turns out that the reason why this podcast has gone quiet, I mean, I was looking on the timeline and looking at the um, the, the Twitter account set up for this podcast, is because he is now under investigation by the very Met Police that he was championing. Now, he was saying things like, you know, it's it's interesting when colleagues uh, investigate colleagues and uh, the, 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 the Casey report is um, is is 100 um, percent right. 
in terms of the, the the racism that exists. And I'm thinking, okay, well, hold on a minute. You were the one who were championing. You were the one who were waving the flag. You were the one that, that was urging Black people to join that very organisation that you are now calling out. Now, that Twitter account no longer tweets. So I'm guessing that... Um, the, the powers that be have stopped him in his tracks in terms of uh, that narrative, that particular narrative. But that is who I'm thinking of when you were talking earlier uh, about Stafford. Stafford has a very um, clear mandate. And for me, people like the Idomniks, people like the cheerleaders that we see on the, on the timeline, get in the way because not only do they gaslight and tell you that the Met Police or the police in general is the right place for black people in order to make change, but they seem to have selective memory when it comes to actually choosing what to actually amplify on their particular Twitter feed and seem to be all about having conversations, we should all come to the table and discuss things. And I'm talking specifically about those people who have been in service for more than five years. I mean, the particular individual I'm I'm thinking of comes to my um comes to my uh Twitter page frequently. I've put him on flipping mute now because he offers nothing only cheerleading. And this is somebody who's been in the service, uh, if his timeline is to be believed, for over 15 years. Whilst he might have, have, have left the service, this is someone who is of no use to Black people because mm. you are basically gaslighting us. Yeah. Give us a balanced view. Give us a warts and all, but don't just, just come on my Twitter space and talk about how glorious it is and why we should give them that a chance and why we should come to the table and discuss things. Fuck There's off, a mate. lot of people like that. Do you know what a really good book to read is? Um, I think I've mentioned this, Kevin Maxwell's Four Souls. In it, he talks about the institutionalization process for black officers. Mm. So mm. it's a process where you have to, at some point you, you basically have to either internalize the racism or leave or fight to for nail against it. And I don't mean, you know, just attend and uh, Blinken Black Police Association meeting. I mean, fight to for nail against it because it, it basically absorbs into your mind. And it's, it's hard to speak to because it's just such a cult mentality within the police. They, they socialize together. It's this kind of, the they deliberately want you to feel like part of a family, but you can only be part of that family if you're willing to overlook corruption, racism, homophobia, and misogyny. And if you're someone like me, who's just like, no, no, I can see this and I'm not gonna be a part of it, then you will have a very difficult time. But basically Kevin Maxwell said, it takes at least two years to deinstitutionalize a police officer. And that's even if they want to be deinstitutionalized. And like even my husband, Paul said, before you started to leave, like, the way you were talking and stuff, like you started to be different in the way that you were talking. And he said, and once you left, I could see that you were like sort of coming back to being the normal Chantal. And he said, and I think if you'd stayed a little bit longer, you would have been like fully institutionalized. And even with me, I think luckily for me, once I left, I went straight to university to like criminology, which just looks at 
the social structure of crime and how it basically benefits the ruling class to the expense of working class and racialized people. And I feel like because I instantly went into university and went into a space where my thinking a, it legitimised a lot of the things that I went through, but also it challenged me thinking on a lot of other things. Like, why were we only in working class areas? Why were we never in the posh parts of town? Why did we follow bags of money, but we never got round to that 70-year-old guy who'd been bageled last night? It really mm -hmm. challenged me thinking. So I feel like it kind of sped up the deinstitutionalisation process for me, and I, I kind of probably wasn't properly institutionalised in the first place because I'm so stubborn. But a lot of officers I see when they leave or who... They say they've left the police, but like I think in your mind, you're still there. Do you know you're what I mean? You're still in. a part of the force, yeah. basically. So not everyone will get to that place. It's only if they want to. And a lot of them, they, they kept along with friendships and they still think they're part of the club and they like that they can have access to information and they can have secret chats at these officers. But that they're basically being groomed by these officers so they can still continue to give them information about the community. <laughs> like they think the mates and it's like, well, actually, I'm just going to fill in an intel report after I've finished talking to you. So, yeah, it, it's not a two way street. You're not an equal to them. And it's really frustrating when you see people like, oh, yeah, because they do feel like they're making a difference. God bless them. They do feel like they're doing something, but they're not making a difference for us. They're making a difference in terms of someone's getting a promotion off the back of the intel that you're providing them. Exactly. About your community. So go on, Michael. What do you want to talk about? What else? <laughs> okay. I alluded to it earlier, so I'm going to go full in on it now. Police have basically strip searched more than 13,000 children since 2016, which is disgusting. Now, it includes at least two children who are under the age of 10. Oh my now, God. the data that has come about recently, it was splashed across most of the broadsheet, exposes an extraordinary racial bias with black children making up 60% of under 18s strip search by some police services. Now, at least 13,255 children have been strip searched in the last five years. Now, I know that, you know, child Q is fresh in the minds of many. She was strip searched at school while she was menstruating. But the, the, the thing which is unspoken here is the real figure is likely to be far higher. Now, the reason why I'm bringing this to the table is, again, it's about these cheerleaders. It's about these paid PR on the timeline who basically attacked me when this was a pylon, <clears throat> excuse me, when I brought this to the timeline in saying, what is it with the police service fixation of undressing black children? Now, I got a massive pushback where people were basically saying, no, what we're doing here, we're saving black lives by stripping them because, you know, we're looking for weapons. But what they're failing to understand, and I really do need you to um, provide context, Surely in the majority of these cases where children have been stripped, they're not looking for concealed weapons by taking their clothes off. It's, my gut feeling is it's a dehumanization aspect of making someone feel and breaking them down and basically asserting authority. I don't really feel that it's a check for weapons, but the reason, as I say, for bringing it to the timeline is just the alarming 
amount of black children who were targeted. So I just really wanted your con your con your context on it all in terms of children being strip searched. Does the weapons narrative have any sway here? For me, it doesn't. Um, again, I think it's massively to humiliate, dehumanise and basically break down black children who are probably, you know, they're perceiving them as a threat, as they always do with black people, and they're perceiving them as not showing them the respect they deserve. Although, if you ask me, they deserve absolutely fuck all respect and no respect at all for them. But it's a humiliation process though i don't know if your report has given any more details on this but the last bit of information i had that were, was a lot of these strip searches don't lead to arrest a lot of children actually aren't even under arrest when they're being strip searched they're mm. merely detained i mean and for the legislation around strip search it's like it's meant to be in the most serious cases so it's supposed to be if someone's got drugs concealed if they're going to be harmed themselves or others and obviously the weapons narrative the the you could think that there's an argument for that but then in custody suites they've got metal detectors are you telling me that a metal detector is not going to pick that up and then if your metal detector isn't picking it up where where are these children concealing these weapons and how are they not hurting themselves so for mm. me if that's the case that then becomes a medical issue so take them to hospital notice how many of us get through an airport without taking off a single bit of clothing and they're some of the most stringent security measures out there we get through airport security without taking off a single bit of clothing so you're not telling me the technology is at a place where we can you know give people dignity whilst also, you know, conducting our duties as a police officer. So for me, I don't believe the children should be strip searched. And I go through this, you know me, I'm always in my head, Michael. I always like to, and I'm not, you know, I like to be devil's advocate a little bit and always think of, okay, you know, what what situation would you actually justify a strip search? Child care, cannabis, the kids didn't have cannabis. Even if the kids did have cannabis, does that justify a strip search? Absolutely no. not. It justifies going home and saying, we couldn't find anything in the search, but your kid smells a little bit of cannabis, so you might want to have a conversation because we couldn't find anything. There was absolutely no justification. The fact is the child had nothing. But even if there was something, there's no justification because it's not necessary. Do you know what I mean? It's all about being proportionate, justifiable, and necessary. There was no necessity to that. And the only time I could think of a of a time when I would think, oh, something would have to happen here, is when a child's being used as a drug mule and they've got a significant amount of class A drugs ingested inside them and there's the potential that they could die if something isn't done. But for me, in that case, wherever the drugs are, again, it's a medical issue. You take that child to hospital and allow a medical examiner to do an examination that's dignified and has the parents present and basically is all around the child's welfare and for me that's a welfare issue because again if a child under the age of 16 is being used as a drug mule then that's a welfare issue it's not a criminal justice issue so for everything else they've got the money to get the technology in so they don't have to be strip searching young people they've got metal detectors so there's really there's no justification that i can say because if you go to custody, there's metal detectors that you can put all over someone's body and find whatever you need to find. And I think it's purely about humiliation. They look for different ways. It's like a game to them. They look for different ways to humiliate someone. And no matter, you know, no matter how resilient you are as a person, if you strip someone's clothes off, 
they humiliate us, aren't they? They're absolutely yeah. humiliate us. You've broken them down as a human being yeah. by embarrassing, humiliating them, and you're dehumanizing them as well. Yeah. So it's horrific, yeah. absolutely horrific. So I'm glad you put that into context because everybody I have spoken to who has been strip searched has said to me that is why they did it. They had no other justification, but because I was being quote unquote difficult, because I was answering back, it was used as a way to break me and to actually dehumanize me. I've never spoken to anybody who has been through a strip search, who has given me anything to the contrary, mm-hmm. other than it was meant to break them down. And if you think about it, it's the ultimate power play. So the thing when I was in the police that I noticed was they've moved away from doing the overt stuff. And while some people may say, yay, that's a good thing. They have to look at ways to be just as evil and vindictive, but without putting a finger on you. So they can't be letting kids leave custody with bruises all over them because what the hell, people are going to go off their heads. But you can make someone take the clothes off, can't you? You're not putting a finger on them. You're not doing anything. You're just telling them, but they can't leave that room until they've done it. So essentially, you've inflicted just as many scars on someone, on a child, but those scars are internal and those scars are mental scars that they'll probably never heal from. But when they leave that station, no one's going to really look at them and go, something's happened to you. And probably they're so humiliated that, especially, you know, if it's it's lads, if it's young teenage boys, they're probably not even going to want to tell anyone what's happened. And that's the power play. And it's absolutely heartbroken. It is child abuse. I don't care what anyone says. It is child abuse, plain and simple. 100%. So, finally, what are you uh, closing out the show with? In terms oh, Michael. Of, what brings <laughs> to the table? My final one is black misleadership. And it's something that's been like, I, I've had a few, I've sent you a few angry voice notes about this. It really, really bothers me. Um, I'm not going to name names, but you know, you can look on me Twitter and see see who I'm talking about but it's black people and we've got a lot of you know we've arguably got our most diverse cabinet and shadow cabinet we've got a lot of black and brown people in high places but a lot of those people aren't aren't about it they're not fighting for our communities and it really really frustrates me because especially in Liverpool we've got some people who've made history and got into positions of leadership, arguably off the back of BLM in the years since BLM, and have not said, a th- and I mean a thing, I've looked through these people, the Twitter of these people, not said a thing about racism within the police force, not said a thing about Child Q, not said a thing about Chris Carber, not said a thing about all of the issues that are absolutely rocking our community. And for me, I just think the people who have come before us, the people who fought tooth and nail, the people who lost their lives, lost their liberty, absolutely fought for our community to have the rights that we've got, but not just the rights to have the a voice, a voice where we might be able to change things. And for people, and you know, me, me and you, Michael, we've got voices, we've got platforms, but there's only so much we can change on our platforms yeah. with our voices. When elected representatives stand next to the police, at events on a daily basis have meetings with the police have debriefs with the police and never once use their platforms to call out institutional police racism or institutional misogyny or institutional homophobia within the police force never once speak to those issues that are facing the communities 
oh it kills me it absolutely kills me so i recently called someone else on this and i just think i would label it black misleadership and you know some people might say well it's not the job of black people to talk about racism but i'd argue that if you were in a position of authority if you are an elected politician and you are not talking about institutional police racism but you know you you might want to talk about like racism that people face in the workplace or racism within the education system because they're perceived as safer issues and less political issues i just think you're doing a massive disservice to the black community and i think when we elect people who look like us to lead us and to represent our communities that is my expectation as a black person if i elect you to lead and if i support you and if i endorse you to be a leader I do so as an act of good faith that you are going to speak to the things that our communities are facing and I just think like there's people we've got an event for the international day um, against violence against women and girls so it's obviously speaking out against violence against women and girls mm. in Liverpool I think next Friday and the police are literally going to be on that platform delivering a speech not just the police but the PCC and I'm like are we, are we all going to ignore the elephants in the room? Are we really going to platform the police and an event about misogyny and violence against women and girls when we know that some of the most high-profile and horrific incidents of violence and abuse, child queue included, against women and girls have been perpetrated by the very officers that wear the same uniforms as you? Some of those officers in the force that you lead, are we really going to do that? And I just think anyone who stands on a platform and doesn't bring up the elephants in the room, you're just as bad because silence is violence. So that's me rant. I don't know what you think about it, Michael, but I'm fuming. <laughs> <laughs> Bringing it back to the police, when you think about it, Mark Rowley is being very, very clever. So he thinks in not addressing racism because he knows that's a big bugbear for the police. He'll get ripped to shreds if he starts talking about institutional racism that exists within the police. He'll get ripped to shreds if he starts talking about racism that exists within the uh, within the police service. If you notice, he's not touched those at all. Yeah. The fact is, there is a massive backlash that you, re you receive online when you talk about either of those things. So the case in point, the person who you have highlighted on your timeline, I think is scared of that backlash, does not want to touch that with a barge pole because she knows what comes with it. Mm. The accountability standing up and saying that this exists comes with a massive, massive backlash online. And some people just aren't about that life. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't say what I say online to attract the backlash, but I know that it's coming and I know that it comes with that baggage when I talk about it. Some people just want the quiet life. Some people want the frills and the, the um, pomp and ceremony of being an elected official, but without embracing what actually goes with it when you talk about representation and calling out things, which basically is your job to do. And that's why, you know, I know she's not everybody's cup of tea, but I've got a big up Katrina French because while she's in a position that um, is highfalutin, she's an elected official now, she's still on the timeline amplifying those messages where we are calling out um, police racism, where we are calling out institutional racism in the police. I've got a bigger up for that because where she sat right now, she could quite comfortably and quite in a cushy way just say, you know what, I've made it. Bye, niggas. 
but what? she's not saying what that. does katrina french do now sorry i've, I've missed now an elected councillor oh amazing I forget which um, borough, which council, but she's also, as I say, doing a lot in terms of representation. Um, she was one of the integral voices or she was a very loud voice with regards to um, the whole gang's matrix. She's mm. not shirking her responsibility when it comes to representing black people. So I hear where you're coming from in the person that you have highlighted, but not everybody is like that. Mm. And um, I can understand, though, and not agree with why this individual that you have actually um, not named, just like Voldemort, um, <laughs> why that person would want the good life, the easy life, the pomp and ceremony um, is not going to be interrupted by anybody online, which it would be if she were doing her job properly. Mm. I think while we're speaking about people who don't speak up, I think you've done really well to speak about someone who does, but I also would like to give props to, um, and I probably will miss some. So like, these are just the people who are in my head right now who I know of have seen on the marches. Belle Ribeiro Addy, I 100%. see here. Belle Ribeiro Addy, I see here every time at protests, at marches, at conferences, but also just using a profile to speak about what the issues that our communities are facing. And as you say, I don't think that's an easy position to take, especially when you are one of few people in political positions doing that book, Bell never lets us down. Yeah. Ditto Diane Abbott, like Diane Abbott's tweets are yeah. fire. There is yeah. a reason Diane Abbott receives half of the abuse aimed at any female MP in politics. Mm -hmm. Spoiler, it's because she's a black woman, but also it's because she's a black woman who does not keep her mouth shut on the issues that we need our black leaders to speak about. And yes. Diane Abbott, she was the first woman elected into politics, first black mm -hmm. woman. She was elected mm -hmm. the year I was born. Can you imagine what she has been through as a politician? She could easily just like she could easily just never tweet again because we all know who she is she's been amazing she could just yeah. like leave it she doesn't have to say anything about anything she could have that easy life that you're talking about but not in that way of oh she's got the easy life we'd all be like do you know what diane it's all right <laughs> bell's got it but she doesn't she's still there tweeting every single day turning up at marches yeah. fighting the good fight calling out every fucker who needs to be called out yeah. and she's incredible bell diane and dawn they're the three people i'm going to give props to amandu reed from the women's equality party they were all women michael throwing some men if you want to but i just want to say they're doing incredible work but that work would be a lot easier if everyone jumped on board with them do you know what i mean if everyone was doing it you know something the people who i've got in mind right now people like dr rebecca tidy now i know she gets a lot of flack online a hundred percent of which comes from misogynist, sexist, racist um, police officers or purporting to be police officers. But she is not backwards in coming forward in mm. calling out the misogyny. And she gets, as I say, a lot of stress because of that. So I've got to big up her bravery. Um, Jamie Klingler, she's very loud on the timeline. Mm. And... Patsy uh, Stevenson. Patsy. And what I like about these three women is not only are they amplifying black voices, they're getting the fuck out of the way when black voices are speaking and making sure they're not the lead narrative. They're saying, you know what? I get my place here in terms of where 
I can actually assist, I can help. And it's not by actually tooting my horn, it's by providing the assistance, it's providing the support. And speaking of that, I've got, again, I know I started with her, but big her up again. And that is Rebecca Tidy is one of the main reasons why I have been using um, newspaper formats in terms of getting the messages out there. She's really shown me that, you know, it's one thing to have an amplified voice on your timeline, Mm. but you literally can go tenfold, 15fold when you actually get in touch with the papers and they give you a platform by which to stand on. So, you know, thank you to her for that. But not only that, Kalechi Okafor doesn't get enough press, doesn't yes. get enough publicity, doesn't get enough praise. Again, she's given me the strength and the courage to say, you know what? I'm going to tell you how I feel and I don't care who gets hit or hurt. I'm saying my truth and I'm saying the truth without fear or favor. So Kalechi Okafor, she gets my nomination for person of the year. You know what we should do? We're talking about people who should be exalted, should be praised and should be on a pedestal. I've mentioned two black women um, at the moment in the forefront of my mind, but the last one is Melissa Segodo. She is without fear or favor, always on the timeline. Likewise, her colleague, Lorraine King, I think we need an award. Naomi ceremony. White, we do. I was thinking, like, yeah, we need Naomi White as well. Journal- yes. Journalists who are just like out there. We need our journalists too, and um, and taking the rocks that people are throwing at them online, mm-hmm. but no saying or or saying, no, I don't care what you say. This is the truth, nothing but the truth, and I'm going to say it without fear or favor. Big up to all of those women, men. You need to step up your game i'm struggling right now to come i was up thinking with michael's <laughs> gonna come with some man and michael's just like this woman i'm here for it the feminist in me is like preach michael yes big up the women but you know something <laughs> the, the, the one that springs to mind in terms of always on the timeline he doesn't care who comes to fight and that is ash the ash rb is his uh twitter handle follow him he always has a lot to say in terms of um, again, kind of like backing the sisters up, which mm. I really do believe in. I, I wouldn't even say it's a narrative. It's the truth that we need to exalt our sisters. We need to big them up. We need to put them on a platform mm. and we need to support them more. And he is really about that life. And finally, he needs bigging up. Now, when it comes to housing, you know who I'm coming with now. Quajo. Oh, yeah. Quajo, I yes. mean, really and truly, he is the poster boy when it comes to um, bigging up our rights, making sure our voice is heard, regardless of whether it's on um, TV, whether it's on radio or whether it's in the papers. Quajo, I salute you. So those are the men. I have to say. I'm, I'm glad I was able to pull some out the bag. Um, out the bag. And um, yes, those are the men for me who definitely need to be exalted and to be recognised and to be saluted. Amazing. I, I'm going to throw in two men. I've forgotten both surnames though, purely because I'm dyslexic. Um, Phoenix, who is my little bestie in London, who does incredible work, um, founder of Black Music Movement, all about challenging racism through creativity and art, um, and just has so much respect for his black queens. And Marlon, I, for the life of me, can't remember your surname, Marlon. It's probably on me Insta somewhere. But Marlon does a lot of work in climate justice activism. Um, mm. And again, just I heard Marlon speak for the first time, like live at an XR event recently, and just absolutely incredible person. Um, I 
probably spent most of the time backstage just like talking the leg off Marlon but really incredible men out there just like doing the thing in the world of activism fighting for a more equal society which is more of what we need one just sprung to mind and I'm, I, I feel as though it'd be remiss of me not to actually bring him to the conversation I know we've mentioned it before but Stafford Scott Stafford yeah. I have to say I draw a lot of inspiration from not just in terms of the fearlessness but again just like Kalechi Okafor he's not afraid to say exactly what he's uh, about on the timeline what he's thinking without fear or favor and I feel that's what a lot of us need to be on mm. we need to be on smoke and he's definitely about that life and I like that and I respect that because I liked what he said in the recent space in that we're making people feel a bit too comfortable with us as black people. And when it comes to our issues in that we're a little bit too, um, what's the word he used? We're, we're, we're a little bit too tame. We're a little bit too laid back. The ferociousness needs to come out from time to time so that people just won't fuck with us yeah Stafford's definitely a fighter and while he's not me busy I feel like we'd proper get on if it wasn't for the fact that I used to be a busy we'd be best friends <laughs> Stafford just see past it it doesn't help that I have blue hair but honestly I don't have a blue heart be me friend Stafford um, but now I do I do I've got loads of respect for him um, even though we sometimes um, have crosswords on Twitter spaces, but no, he is. He's about that fight, and it's good. It's good to have that spirit, especially after all the years he's been bloody taking the matter task. Bloody hell. You know what we should do for the next episode? Seems like these do tend to be monthly now as opposed to twice weekly. I'm sure we're going to rectify that in the new year. Before the year is out, we need to have the, at least one podcast that recognizes some of the achievements of everybody that we've spoken about because there are so many throughout 2022 and it could be the inaugural um, award ceremony that we hold that makes sure that the work that has actually been undertaken that has been um, perhaps in certain quarters overlooked that it gets its proper airing its proper recognition because we need to celebrate our wins and we need to celebrate our triumphs more and um, that award ceremony will allow for that. So look out for that coming to a forthcoming uh, edition of why I'm no longer talking to institutionally racist police. And that kind of concludes this week's episode. Chantel, it's been incredible catching up with you. Um, where can people find you? Because they can find me on Twitter. That's the only place I'm staying uh, until Elon Musk shuts that down and that's at Micro TV. But where can people find you? Uh, although I am on Twitter, it's not like me main social media. So go to me Instagram. Um, it's fun. Have a look at my story. I am, I think I'm just Chantal Lunt on Instagram, but yeah, I'm on Instagram. I'm, I'm trying TikTok out. I'm on Facebook, but I've fallen out of Facebook. And then obviously you can see me um, dragging people all over Twitter. But yeah, check me out on Instagram. That's the best one. Chantal Lunt. Tremendous. Until next time, peace. Bye, guys.